Well, good evening. Welcome to our Bible study over the life of Christ. Let's go ahead and get started. We had ended last week talking about the, the discussion, you might say, the debate, the argument the disciples were having regarding who was the greatest. And uh, their, their bar, the, the bar they were setting to determine who was the greatest, we don't know. We don't know. I, I think we can make some assumptions. Well, I'm the greatest because I've been here the longest. I gave some of those thoughts. We just know that they were all trying to figure out who was the best among them. Christ walks in and takes care of that real fast. He establishes that greatness is not a, a, uh, dependent on what you've done, but more so dependent on the humility, the servant's heart, the love that you show. He specifically says that the greatest of you is the least among you. The greatest of you is the one that would be the, the most humble of servants. He actually pulls a young child up on, on his lap and pulls him in the midst of them and says, if you truly want to be great, if you truly want to reflect me, reflect God's kingdom, then reflect this child, the humility that this child has, the faith that this child had. The disciples, you'd think, would be put in their place. You know, I've talked to people uh, in the past where when you correct someone, there's usually one of two responses you get. It's a, you know what, you're right, kind of maybe a self-reflection and a almost argumentative, but I want to defend what I really believe. I want to defend uh, where I was coming from. I, I don't know that all of the disciples are illustrated in the, some of the responses that we get from a couple of them. Peter, I don't really get the impression that Peter was self-reflecting after Christ made this statement. You know, I've said before, Peter was a work in progress, and I love how God, how Christ, was so patient with Peter, gave him time after time after time. And Peter ends up being one of the strongest leaders in the early church. But that is not because Peter was such a great guy. It's because Christ was so patient with Peter and gave Peter so many chances to overcome his pride, his selfishness, uh, speaking without thinking, a variety of issues that Peter had, which many of us share in the human condition. And so Peter is the one kind of asking questions further in the text that we'll be looking at tonight, questions that I don't know really reflect, as I said, a statement of, you know what, I was wrong, I should not have been trying to compare myself with others. I get more so an idea that Peter wanted to still uh, defend his belief, defend his way of thinking, specifically in this text, when Christ talks about forgiveness, that's when Peter says, well, I forgive seven times. Isn't that sufficient? So that's a kind of a defense of a philosophy. Right after, he was reprimanded by, reprimanded by Christ for comparing himself. So that's where we ended last week. Let's go ahead and take a look at this very interesting passage now. I'm not going to call it the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount was three chapters of Matthew, a very significant portion of Scripture. But this is a really great chunk of Scripture right here, especially when you understand the context in which it's given. See, a lot of times when you hear what's referred to as a topical message, there's two types of way to preach, expository, topical. Those are the two main ways. There's variations of each one, but the topical message is when a preacher goes to a certain text and preaches on a, a concept that, for whatever reason, may be a concept that the church hasn't heard in a long time. Maybe it's a concept that God laid on the pastor's heart, and they feel the need to give to the people. The pastor may not know why, just following the leading of the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's a direct reaction to something that literally just happened like that week, you know, the week before. So the pastor isn't really preaching a message so much as he's preaching to someone in the congregation and using his Sunday morning service to do so. Topical messages are not evil. They're not wrong but they are more prone to human uh, philosophy being inserted because context usually isn't a large part of a topical message. The pastor has to make a concerted effort to take time in his message to explain the context before going into that particular concept. Some do, in my experience, most do not. Therefore, you're basically just a piece is pulled out, preached on, and the preaching, although may be accurate, may not truly reflect everything that Christ was saying because you're only getting a part of the chapter of the book rather than the whole chapter. All right, so I think that you're going to hear a lot of things tonight you already knew. You've heard these, probably preached topically, 
maybe even preached expositorily. Expository is when you just go through the chapter verse by verse, verses by verses, chapter by chapter, within context. And it's really interesting to see what we're going to read tonight within the context of this situation where it started with the apostles arguing. And then in their argument, Christ corrects them. But he doesn't just correct them and then walk away. He corrects them, and you can see what I put up on the screen, how I view it. And the Bible doesn't say, and he began to mentor them, but that's what you see happening here. He begins to mentor his leaders. You see, he didn't just say, hey, guys, you got it all wrong. True greatness is being a servant. True greatness is humility. And I think a lot of us believe that's pretty much how this was handled. The apostles argued. Christ corrects. He reminds them that greatness is is uh, service, humility, and then that's it. But no, there's a lot more that Christ goes into regarding leadership at this time. Here's how I look at it. Christ says, oh, you guys are arguing about leadership. Okay, let's, let's talk about leadership. You, you want to talk about leadership in the aspect of how great it makes you look. You, you want to think of leadership in the way that I'm better than someone because I'm a leader. Well, first of all, that's not true. Becoming a leader doesn't make you a better person. Becoming a leader doesn't make you better than those who you lead. It makes you more responsible. It it does require some very difficult decisions. We're going to talk about that tonight, which means you better have the character to make those decisions. Your choices will impact people. Tonight, he's going to say specifically children, so you better have the character that your impact on these children is positive and not negative. So many young men and women think of leadership Purely through the eyes of glory. I can't wait for that glory. I can't wait for man's praise. I can't wait to be a legend. And that's how they view leadership. And they can't wait to grab more and more of it. Only too late do they realize leadership is not an effort in glory. Leadership is an effort in service. True service. And those are the kinds of leaders God wants in his church. Unfortunately... I'm not convinced those are the kinds of leaders God, God's church wants in their lives. It seems to me that birds of a feather flock together, right? So people who are seeking glory are often drawn towards leaders who are seeking glory. But you also find people who are seeking to serve are often drawn towards people who are seeking to serve. And so, unfortunately, I think the evidence is pretty obvious. It seems to me there's a lot of people and a lot of churches seeking glory. Because there is, without a doubt, a lot of Christian leaders who are seeking glory. Like, I don't know how you could miss that. When you see how a lot of these Christian leaders uh, are, what the books they're writing, the things that they're saying, the way that they act, the way that they handle people, the way they handle themselves, it is obvious to me they are the center of their story. Like, they're the hero of the story, right? And when their story takes a dive in their head, the whole story takes a dive. Because in any book... When the main character has a rough time, the whole book follows the main character. In most stories, in most books, the side characters can die and very few people care. Unless the side character is an amazing character, but in most cases, it's not the case. I mean, mean, it's literally a joke in Star Trek, right? Like the side characters in Star Trek die regularly. They're not even given names. I think they're even given like different uniforms, so you just assume they're going to die, but no big deal, right? And that's because when the side characters have a rough time or die, it's like, well, they're not the main characters. Fine. In many spiritual leaders' minds, they are the main character. And so when their right life gets rough, they think, oh, that's like, you know, Captain Kirk. The whole, the whole storyline shifts with the main character. No, we are side characters at best. Christ is the main character. The problem with taking, well, there's a lot of problems with taking the, the shift from Christ onto yourself, mainly which, of course, is salvation itself is tainted. People are confused, like, now, how do I get saved? Who's saving me? Is it this pastor? Is it God? Like, which one? There's confusion there. But even on a basic level, for someone who's saved, your life is a roller coaster when you're in a story centered around a man. Your life is not doing nearly as many ups and downs and loop-de-loops when your story is centered around Christ because he is the rock. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when Christ is the center of your story, not your parents, not your spouse, not your kids, definitely not yourself, because you above all others should realize how big of a mistake that is. 
if you really know yourself. Like, don't make yourself the main character of your story. You will regret that. But when you make other people the main character, you're still in for a rough ride. Because humanity is depraved. Those of us that are saved are just saved from our depravity. It doesn't mean that we're great people. We are wicked people who've been saved by Christ, now connected to Christ with a better path to choose, but we still have really big problems in our life. So these guys, these apostles, are trying to make the story about them. And Christ is saying, no, that's not what leadership is. The story is not about you. The story is about God, his kingdom, and the people you are serving, but ultimately to reflect the main character, Christ. So with that in mind, let's see some of the mentor, leader mentor tips that Christ himself gives. I love passages like this. People have asked me, not a lot, this has happened occasionally, what books do you read? I do like reading. I actually, uh, when I was younger, read a lot. Not so much now, because when I was younger, I had a lot more time to read than I do today. Uh, a lot of my time is now spent studying and, and teaching, which leaves not as much time for reading. I am a big advocate for reader, and if you've got time to do it, then you should do it. But inevitably, people ask me, what, what books have you read? And I'll give them some books I read, and, you know, what books are you reading now? That may or may not be one right now. I'm, you know, always reading the Bible, but outside of that, I can't really say every week I'm reading a new book. There are pastors that do. I found those pastors that usually, guys who are not working two or three full-time jobs. Those are guys who are pastors full-time. That's all they do. Plenty of time to read books and do all they want to do. So they asked me what books on leadership. And I, there are some great books on leadership out there. I've read some of them. I'm not denying that God has given some men some really solid wisdom in this area. But i got to tell you, uh, no man is going to write any book on leadership that will have better qualities of leadership, better character traits of leadership than God's word. This is the best book on leadership. This is the book that gives the best illustration of leadership, both good and bad. Gives some really bad leadership illustrations in Old and New Testament and some really good ones in Old and New Testament culminating in Christ himself. I'm not saying only read the Bible, don't read other books. I don't believe that. But I am saying if you only read the Bible, you're going to be okay. Can you read more? Yes. Should you? Yes. But the Bible is pretty complete. You'll be fine. So let's see what Christ has to say on his self-help for leaders mentorship book. So we're going to pick right up here with um, the first lesson, which I am not getting the slide to move, guys. Can I do it now? There we go. Okay, is that the one? There we are. Thank you, guys. All right, faith and humility. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18. As I stated, the first response was, you know, you've got to be humble, you've got to be a servant. But let's pick up here in uh, verse number three. Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now remember, this is in the context of their discussion regarding leadership. Matthew um, chapter 18, verse 1. The disciples unto Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The other gospels of Mark and Luke give a fuller story of what was happening during this time, but this is all the same occasion. The disciples are arguing. Christ goes into this verse 3, and we often think of verses 3, 4, and on as a discussion about salvation, and they are. They are a discussion of salvation, but remember, it's given under the mentorship to leaders who are talking about who's the greatest leader. So Christ is saying, all right, you really want to know about great spiritual leadership? It, it starts with this. You have to be saved. <laughs> you're not going to be a great spiritual leader if you're not saved. And faith needs to be the faith of a child. He uses a child to illustrate this. What does that mean? Well, children are obviously naive. Children are easily swayed. Children can be lied to and not know it for some time. That is not what we're talking about here. Children trust easily. Children trust easily, specifically those they love. Children do not trust everyone easily. My oldest daughter, Abby, uh, would never have in her life just walked up to some random stranger and started talking to them. Some children do. 
not mine. I have a couple that might of my five, maybe one of them. The other four, no. They don't just walk up to random strangers and talk to them. That's a personality thing. It's not a child thing. It's not that every child does that. It's a personality of a child. But children who are loved by their parents and who love their parents, regardless of their personality, it's pretty much across the board. Introvert, extrovert, shy, bold. If they are loved and feel safe, they will easily trust their parents. And that is what Christ is referring to here. He's saying, there's no way any human on this earth loves you more than I do. There's no parent that loves a child more than I do. And so I want you to offer me what the standard child offers their parents, trust. Young child, not a teenager, not 25, where life and bad decisions has broken some of that trust. No, a young child who just innocently says, my parents love me, I trust them. And so leaders in this room, you need to understand that leadership is not something that comes easily. It requires a lot of solid character traits, and it begins with faith. Christian leadership begins with faith. He also says here, verse 4, Whosoever there shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest. So faith and humility, using a child to illustrate both. Not that all children are innately humble, obviously. (laughs) I have five, and I'm not going to name names, but yes, uh, not all of my children are innately humble. And I get that, myself included, when I was a child. I was not naturally humble. That took a lot of time and patience on God's part to get me to as far as I have in my journey of humility and still a ways to go. But the point is, most children realize. They, they may be prideful in their mind of, I'm better than that other child. Um, I'm really good at what I do as a child. Most children are smart enough to recognize I'm not as good as my parents. Most children. Most, they may, you know, joss their parents and say, oh, I can beat you in a race or something like that. You race them one, more, one time and they figure out real quick, oop, I was wrong. I can't beat my dad in a race, right? Okay. So children pretty much understand my parent is better. Most children, children, not teenagers and middle scores, most children understand, oh, my teacher is smarter, my teacher is stronger, my teacher is, is better at this than me. Humility is the recognition that you are not maybe as great as your pride would tell you. Humility is the recognition that I don't, I, I don't belong on a pedestal here compared to whoever. I don't belong in the pedestal. I need to get off the pedestal and recognize I'm not as great as I think I am. And so what's the second, the first quality God mentions when it comes to leadership is faith. Why would a church hire a pastor if they have not established beyond possible doubt that this pastor has faith and lives it out? Is beyond me. (laughs) That is the bare minimum. That's the foundation. Like if you can't prove to me, through your past, not from what you say now, through what you have been doing, through what you, how you have been living your life. And you can't prove to me that you have a strong faith that you're living out. No, no, of course you can't be a leader in this church. No, what are you thinking? No, why would you even send your resume in if you can't tell me for certain that you're saved? No, you can't be the pastor here. If there's a lot of churches, I don't even know that ask that question. And if they do ask it, I'm not sure what answer they're expecting or what to look for. But the second quality he mentions is humility. There's a lot of great passages to turn to when it comes to qualities of leader. First Timothy chapter 3 is a great one referring specifically to, to pastors and bishops, but this is another amazing one that most people don't think about. How many of the Christian leaders in your life, think of them, can you give me five solid, strong Christian leaders that had the humility of a child? Not the naiveness of a child, but the humility in the sense of I recognize I'm not nearly as great as, as people say or that I, you know, would, my pride would tell me, like, whatever I'm accomplishing is God. I'm accomplishing it for God. And they truly believe that. Can you give me five? And if you could, are you one of them? Because that's true leadership. That's great leadership. Humility. Humility will do more to enhance healthy relationships, in my opinion, than almost everything else. 
that you can do, being humble. That opens up so many opportunities for conversations, for forgiveness, for actions that lead towards success. Humility paves the way. And yet, the reason these apostles are having this discussion about greatness is because they're prideful. (laughs) And so here Christ is stating, here's great leaders, strong faith and humility. Two things I do not see in the apostles at this point in their life. Well, Pastor Russ, at least they had faith. Oh, do they? I mean, I'm not saying they're not saved, all right? I'm not saying that they're unsaved at this point. I do believe they're saved. Do they have strong faith, the faith of a child, complete trust in God? Not here they don't. I see it in the book of Acts. I see them going through great trials and trusting Christ. I see folks like the Apostle Paul, uh, hardship after hardship, but he says, hey, Christ's got me. Whatever happens is for good. I trust him, right? That's the faith of a child right there. Do you see that in the Gospels? I certainly do not. Because when we get to the end of the Gospels, what happens? Christ is arrested and they all scatter. Save one, John. Doesn't scatter, but he follows from afar. He doesn't stand up at the trial and say, no, no, no. All these false witnesses, no. Let me tell you about Jesus. I've been with him. No, he just stands in the shadows and watches, which is kind of better than Peter cursing God's name in the courtyard and maybe kind of better than the other apostles who are nowhere to be found. But he's still not a great example of childlike faith. He's scared. He's unsure of the future. And we see that continued at the death of Christ. Not a lot of apostles are around. We know John is there again because Jesus says to Mary, he says, Mother, here is your child. He says to John, uh, John, here is your mother. So we know John was there. But then after he dies for three days, it seems like the apostles just lose hope. Their faith is gone. The two greatest qualities of spiritual leaders are not in the apostles' lives right now. Strong faith, deep humility. And isn't it great that Christ did not just abandon them right there? Aren't you glad that even the most basic of expectations we could fail in, and Christ still says, I can work with this. I can work with you. I am so glad for that. I get the opportunity to teach high school Bible, and I was telling the students just yesterday in high school Bible class, we were actually going through the life of Christ as well. And I said, you know, God called me at age 18 into full-time ministry. Without a doubt, I, have, I, I, I completely believe that to this day. Never doubted it since. Full-time ministry calling was 18. And I said, when God called me, he was calling me away from something that I wanted to do, broadcasting, to something completely different. And something I was completely unprepared for, is what I told them. I stated that when God called me at 18... I began my journey of preparation and got involved in ministries, but I was not anywhere close to being prepared for them. I said it wasn't until at least five, if not closer to ten years later, till I actually started feeling prepared. Like I actually knew what I was doing and I, was being, I, I really felt equipped to do what God had called me to do. It took five to ten years of God's patience allowing me to make some mistakes. And boy, did I make some mistakes. Some big ones, some small ones, but they piled up. God patiently worked with me for five to ten years. I am not saying I've arrived. I'm just saying I I do feel equipped for what God has called me to do. I still got a lot more to learn, but I'm not floundering, you know, keeping my head above water, feel like like I'm drowning. I did feel that way earlier on. Five to ten years. I am so grateful that God doesn't say, all right, I've called you. Now you better be ready tomorrow. I'm so grateful that God doesn't say, I saved you. I want to see complete change tomorrow. God gives us time. He gave time to the apostles. And through time, we see some amazing progress in their lives. Time plus God equals amazing progress. But remember, mentoring leaders, right? The two greatest qualities of any spiritual leader, faith and humility. I really, really believe that. I would personally say the next one would be love. I think that faith and humility should come before love because if you love someone and have no faith, what exactly are you accomplishing? If you love someone but you have pride, is it really love, right? It's not 1 Corinthians 13 love if it's prideful. So to be true love, humility has to come first. I would say love is a very close third what you should be looking for in spiritual leaders. 
Let's go on to the next point that Christ makes here. In, uh, we're already in Matthew, so let's just, let's just stay in Matthew. Um, I'm actually, I'm sorry, it's not in this section. It's in Mark. So let's go to Mark. Mark chapter 9. Uh, in the same time frame where Christ is talking with the apostles about leadership, the gospel of Mark gives us another command along with the gospel of Luke that is not mentioned in uh, Matthew. So Mark chapter 9, after Christ mentions the child, and you need to have faith and humility of a child, we're told now in verse 38, and John answered him saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not, wait, wait, I'm, I'm, Am I, is my Bible maybe misprinted? Maybe I have a, a corrupt version, possibly, because I can almost guarantee, it seems to me, John is including himself in, in this group as a, not you, but us, right? Does your Bible say the same thing? Does he, does he say in your Bible, uh, we, he was casting out devils, but he didn't follow you? Is that what your Bible says? Because mine says us. Are we on the same page? Does that bother you? Are you bothered that John is saying, Christ, they don't follow me. I mean you. I mean us. Yes, it does, doesn't it? It says us. What does that tell you? Pride. <laughs> right? What I tell you is the greatest, the greatest foundational. It's faith and humility. Obviously, even John himself is still struggling with this at this point. John, what are you talking about, man? Are, are you the one that saves people? I'm, am I missing something? Did you, are you the one that God sent to, to bring people to heaven and rescue them from hell? I'm pretty sure that's just Christ. And I'm pretty sure that when you signed up to follow Christ, you were supposed to bring people to Christ, not to you. In fact, do you remember when John first met Christ? That is what he did. Do you remember that story? When Christ first revealed himself to the public, John the Baptist was preaching, Christ arrives, and we find John and Andrew meeting Christ, saying, can we come stay with you tonight? Like, you have some amazing things. Can we hang out with you? Christ said, come see where I stay. Then we find, not long after that, John and Andrew seem to be bringing people to Christ. They seem to be telling others about Christ. It seems to me, John and Andrew started off it's all about Christ. It's all about Christ. What happened from then to here? I'll tell you what happened. John started to enjoy some of the glory that was Christ's, and he wrongly assumed it was partly his. That happens to so many leaders. We do amazing things for God because God is truly so amazing, he can use people like us to do amazing things. <laughs> and then we start convincing ourselves, oh, it wasn't actually God after all. It was me. I was doing those things. You know, God sure is lucky to have me. And you know, if people aren't following me, are they even really following Christ? I don't know, I don't know about that because, I mean, I'm like the superstar of God's kingdom. I'm the superstar of the church. I mean, what would this church be without me? So if they're not following me, they're not following Christ. That's what I see right here. Now, maybe I'm reading into it. Maybe, maybe I'm reading deeper than I should. But I, I do believe that's what's happening. I believe John is being honest, maybe uh, subconsciously honest, when he says, doesn't follow us. Therefore, they can't be good people. <laughs> what is Christ's response? Verse 39, forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in our name. Oh, no, he's not playing John's game. <laughs> in my name. Yes, Marianne's like, wait a second. No, that's not right either. You're right, Marianne. Christ says, in my name, not your name, John, not our name. It's not a plurality here. No, in my name. That can lightly speak evil of us. Oh, nope, me again. <laughs> for he that is not against us, he does say us there, is on our part. For whosoever shall give, him, give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. Does that mean that all churches in the world should just get along? Do you guys know what ecumenicalism is? To be ecumenical uh, implies this idea that 
there are no boundaries in religion. If, if you claim to literally have the t- title ecumenical in your church's name or on your literature, you are strongly supporting this idea that, that everyone gets to heaven through God. You may call him Allah. I may call him Jesus. But there's only one God. We believe that. So whatever you name you give him, we're all getting to heaven. And you may have a different idea of how this God acts. And maybe you have a different book from which you read about this God. I use the Bible. You use the Quran. You use the Book of Mormon. You know, whatever. But it's all God. And we all get to heaven different ways, but kind of the same. That's ecumenicalism. All right. I am not teaching that. I don't believe that. Because... The difference in name isn't really a big deal. Jesus, God, had, God has so many different names in Old and New Testament. Jesus himself has multiple names in the Old and New Testament. Uh, that It's not that, oh, how dare you use a different name than Jesus? You can't be saved. No, when you evaluate the person's God, is that the God of the Bible? If the, name, if the, if the God they're following is not the God of the Bible... I don't care even if you call him God. I don't care if you call him Jesus. If you tag the name Jesus to a God that does not match the Bible, then no, we're not going the same direction. And no, we're not both getting to heaven in the same way just because you call your name Jesus, call your God Jesus, or call your God God. So I do not believe that religion is without boundaries. Christ here, though, is pretty clear when he says, when they do it in my name. So he's not saying as long as they follow a God, they're okay. That's one of the Ten Commandments, right? Don't worship other gods. God's pretty clear on that one. But just because they don't attach themselves to your group, just because they're not part of your group, just because they're not claiming the name Meriden Hills, doesn't mean they don't follow me. So what I said, look here in verse 39. He says, uh, they do a miracle in my name, and they, 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 they don't basically speak evil of me, then they can be part of your group. Meaning, your group should not be confined to just your group. Your group should not be so narrow that it's only people who agree with you on everything. Only people who hang out with you. Only people who go to your church, at your location, in your building. No, they can be part of your people, even if they're not with your people. Why? Because they're my people. Verse 39. Mine as in Christ, not mine as in mine, right? Christ is saying, if they're my people, they are your people. Whether you like them or not, or know them or not, it doesn't matter to me. If you are my people, and they are my people, then you are all one people. That is what he's saying. That's the comparison contrast of 3940, in my opinion, of the me, me, and then us. No, you need to embrace other Christians, as your people, even if you've never met them before. Because if you embrace me and I embrace them, I want you to embrace each other. Play nice together. Get along. Well, God, you do understand they use drums at that church. Yeah, I know. I mean, they use the electric guitar. I get it. Yeah, God said, I'm not stupid. I see that. I understand that. Well, we don't. I also know that. Well, we're right. Eh, well. (laughs) Look. Obviously, both churches think they're right, and that's why they do what they both do when it comes to music, when it comes to the way they dress. When it comes to, dare I say it, the way the pastor dresses, you, maybe you would believe, maybe you wouldn't be shocked at how crazy some Christians get just from the pastor not wearing a tie, not wearing a suit coat, wearing jeans, Heaven forbid. What is that man thinking? Like, can you even preach the truth if you're wearing jeans? Well, now we're going to get really crazy. What if the man's wearing shorts? I mean, we can all agree the guy's a reprobate if he's preaching in shorts, right? We can just solidify that right now. Okay. You get where I'm going? At some point in your mind and in your heart, you feel like a line has been crossed. Let me ask you this. Why? Why do you feel that line has been crossed? Can you show me in Scripture where a man preaching in shorts is wicked. No, you can't. Look, Russ, you're pushing the envelope here, but surely, surely you do not believe it's okay for a man to wear sandals while he preaches. Who wants to see his feet 
I would say, well, don't call me Shirley. And if Christ, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I thought about not saying, I couldn't help myself. I'm sorry. If it was good enough for Christ, right? What do you think? Christ was wearing uh, clothes in dress shoes. Christ was wearing sandals. Now, don't worry. I'm not going to wear sandals to church on Sunday. That would be a distraction that no one wants to be dealt with, all right, be bothered with. My point is there actually is evidence in Scripture that sandals is okay, and there is no evidence that it's wrong. And yet there are people who would literally leave a church who in all other areas, doctrinally sound, the worship was sincere, but if that pastor comes in with sandals and a, and a T-shirt, I'm gone. My concern would be why. Why is the pastor wearing sandals and a T-shirt? Is he doing it to make a statement, to shock value? I mean, I would want to know. And I would ask, what's the motive? And is the motive one of humility to represent Scripture? Or is there some other something going on that represents more pride or an aspect of leadership that I'm not interested in seeing? But the sandals themselves are not the issue, (laughs) The T-shirt itself is not the issue. And yet we make issues out of these things. And Christ says, stop it. Do they believe me? Do they follow me? Then they're part of your group. Well, but Christ, I don't know them. You don't have to. You'll spend eternity with them. Don't worry. You'll get to know them. But Christ, they're not members of our church. Uh, Well, it's not your church, John. It's my church. It can be your group, and you better include them because it's my church. Unity. Do not unite with everyone. The Bible is extremely clear on that. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was literally told to go to war against other nations so there would not be an unhealthy uniting, to to eliminate them, to push them out, so that Israel, God's original intention for the nation of Israel, was to be a land of folks who only followed and loved God. That's how he originally designed it, not to intermingle, not, not with other races. That was not the problem for God but with other belief systems. That was the issue. God did not want an intermingling of belief systems in the Old Testament, nor does he want an intermingling of belief systems in the New Testament. In the church, he tells multiple churches through the epistles of the Apostle Paul and others that you've got to deal with the false teachers in your church. They're causing havoc. Get them out. Throw them out. Treat them as heathen. Like, don't even be nice to these guys. They are destroying God's church. An intermingling of false beliefs is not what God is calling on here. In the book of Revelation, we find the seven letters to the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And in almost every one of those letters, Christ is dealing with the fault of the particular church who is letting in false teaching, uh, uh, corrupted leadership. A, a, an idea that would turn people away from God, not towards him. And Christ says again and again to these churches, get these people out. Their immorality, their lies is destroying your church. And Christ says, if you do not get them out, I will shut your church down. I will close the doors. You guys will not be able to continue as you are. I won't let you. If you have this ecumenical idea of, All belief systems are okay as long as you include the word God at some point in the day. No, that's not true. So have a standard. The standard is Christ. Stop making the standard dress. Stop making the standard music. Stop making the standard hairstyles or shoe styles, ties or no ties. Stop making the standard uh, what it is you eat in the lobby if there's a coffee machine there or not, or if coffee's allowed in the sanctuary. I literally, this was years and years ago. I had someone tell me one time that uh, they were upset that someone brought coffee in the sanctuary. This was, this was before, like, most of you were here. This was not anytime soon. And I looked at this person. I said, what, is this a child? Like, you're upset a child brought coffee and you were, you were afraid they were going to spill it? And the adults, this is an adult talking to me, said, no, it was another adult. And I said, what's your concern, that the adult is going to spill the coffee? I mean, they should be responsible enough to bring coffee and not spill it. And I said, worst case scenario, they spill, we clean it up. They said, no, it's not appropriate to bring coffee in the sanctuary. And I looked at this person and I said, I have to disagree with you. I don't, I don't see that in Scripture where it's wrong to bring coffee in the sanctuary during worship. And that was that. I, just, I moved on. You would be shocked at some of the things that are important to people. 
and what they will use as the line of demarcation. You stay over here, I'm staying over here. Stop it. And if you're going to draw a line and say you can't be part of our people, well, first of all, you better make sure you're on the right side of the line. Is your people Christ, or are you creating your own cult? You're creating your own group that Christ is no longer a part of. So make sure you're on the right side of the line, and then make sure you're not drawing the line. If you're going to have a line, great, because there is a line. Make sure you know where Christ drew the line, and then don't bump the line further towards you than Christ intends. Our unity is on Christ, not on our philosophy of worship, not on our philosophy of dress, or any other philosophy. Our unity is on our theology, our belief system of who Christ is. Does that mean we as a church are forced to let people come in and get up on stage and teach whatever they want about, you know, how, how, why doesn't everyone, you know, sandal Sunday, everyone wears sandals next Sunday, and you know, why don't you guys have drums up here, and I'm bringing drums next Sunday. Do I have to let them say those things from the pulpit? No, it just causes confusion. It's a distraction, it causes confusion, it will cause offense unnecessarily to people. So here's what I believe about churches. God allows churches to have a unique personality. God allows churches to have a unique culture within the church. That is fine, because there are some people who literally cannot worship if there's a drum on stage. They'll go crazy. It will bother them to no end. If there's a drum on stage, all they're thinking is, I see a drum, I see a drum, I can't look at the drum, I hear the drum, I can't handle it. I knew someone one time, who, I'm not lying to you, literally had to get up and walk out of church services when they felt that the music was becoming too fast, beady, whatever. There was no drums in the service. But in their head, the music was just too much. I don't even mean too loud. Just It wasn't worshipful enough, whatever their definition was. They actually had to get up and walk into the lobby until the, the singing was done. They'd come back for the preaching. That person does not go to our church. I'm just saying I knew someone like that. My point is, people like that could not and would not be able to thrive in a church that had drums. Fair enough. There are plenty of churches where their personality is more of a non-drum church. We're one of them. You can thrive here. You can thrive in, a pl- in many other churches that agree as well that drums aren't necessary. Great. And then there are people who go to churches where all they've got is a piano, and they're like, you know, falling asleep, and they, they, they literally dread the music, whereas some people are like, this is the greatest ever. I love, don't you love that piano? And don't you love the good old hymns? Like, they put a fire in my soul when I hear these old hymns. And the other person's like, are you serious? A fire in your soul? Like, I feel like a wet blanket. I'm about to fall asleep here. Those people cannot thrive in that kind of church. No problem. There are churches where the worship service includes other instruments than just the piano. Go find one of those. (laughs) But if every church was exactly the same, and they all either had drums, and they only only had a piano, there are so many Christians who would say, well, I'm done then. I can't worship here. I'm done here. Uh, There's no way I can feel like I'm, I'm connected with God. And they'll just stop going altogether. That is not God's heart. So whether you like it or not, or whether you believe it or not, here's the truth. God allows churches to be different. Whoa, 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 Pastor S. Nope, nope, that can't be true. Because if we all have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, and if we all follow the Holy Spirit, we will all be doing exactly the same thing in the same way because we're following God's leading. Oh, really? I challenge you to get 10, 10 independent Baptist preachers in one room. And I challenge you to have them write down 50 of their strongest beliefs And I challenge you to see if they will all agree on all 50 of the most important beliefs in every part of them. I can tell you right now, it's not possible. So if you can't get 50 godly men, you choose them. I don't care who they are. 50 godly men and put them in a room if they can't agree. I'm sorry, I say 10. 10 godly men and put them in a room and have them agree on 50 things. Then how do you expect churches, hundreds of thousands of churches full of millions of people to agree on everything. It's not going to happen. 
But here's the problem. Each of those ten godly men thinks, well, I'm actually the really godliest one. And the other nine are, I, I guess they're not as godly as I thought they were because if they don't believe that, I mean, hmm. That's where, the, where everything falls apart. Is we don't have the humility to recognize we don't all have to look the same. You see, pride says, if you don't look like me, I don't like you. That's pride. Possibly racism. <laughs> Most assuredly, just downright foolishness. If you don't look like me, I don't like you. That's pride. And only and always pride. Whereas humility says, you know what? You don't have to look like me. I'll love you anyways. You don't have to do everything like me. I'm going to love you anyways. You know why? Because I certainly don't look like Christ as much as I want to, and he definitely loves me. Unity. There is a line. Make sure Christ is the one drawing it. Don't move that line, and don't make that line philosophy. Make that line Christ. Christ is the line. Moving on. Leadership, right? We're talking about leadership. Christ is mentoring leaders. Because if anyone needs to know this truth, it's leaders. And unfortunately, I don't think many of them do. I don't think many Christian leaders, church leaders, understand this basic truth. That Christ says, it's not your church, it's my church. John, stop saying us. (laughs) It's me. And they can join you if they're with me. I'm bringing them. They're with me. Mm. I wish more church leaders, Christian leaders, truly believed that and truly acted on that. Years ago... I was speaking with a woman, and godly Christian woman. She said, Russ, I, I trust God. I'm a believer. I, I don't doubt God. I don't doubt his power. She said, there is one thing that really bothers me. I get that bad things happen to people. I understand that. We live in a cursed world. She's telling me this. She said, but I just... I can't, it's hard for me to be okay with all of the wrongs that are done to children. Sexual abuse, on a scale so massive, we're disturbed to even think about it, to even consider that it's out there. If you do any kind of research, the atrocities, atrocities that are done to children for sexual pleasure, it's sickening across the world. Physical abuse. Parents, teachers, whose job it is to protect children. That's their job. They're the ones hurting the children. Physically. I don't I don't mean reasonable discipline. I don't mean controlled discipline that may include some physical correction within reason. I don't mean that. I mean abuse. On a massive scale. Yeah, Russ, the world is a horrible place. I'm not even talking the world. I'm talking churches now. I'm talking Christians at this point. If anyone should be protecting children, it should be family. And if any family should be the greatest example of that, it should be the Christian family. And I can't say in honesty that Christian families have done well in that area. And this woman understands this and said, it bothers me. I looked at her and I said, I understand. It bothers me too. I get it. I get it. I mean, who would not be bothered by the innocence being robbed from these children? The truth is we all lose our innocence. You have to. You can't be an adult and be, be innocent. You, you won't survive. But don't take it from them before they're ready. Don't steal it from them. See, the healthy way is for a child to grow out of their innocence in time. That through a series of personal decisions and experiences that were not unhealthy, just life experiences, through a series of of personal research and knowledge gained, the child walks away from their innocence. That is not wrong. That's the way of life. What is wrong is when an adult steals the innocence from the child who did not themselves walk away from it in the right time. That's the evil. Well, but you know, I didn't. 
we, we didn't hit our children. You know, obviously, no, definitely no sexual abuse. Look, there are way, many ways to steal the innocence of a child. The physical is only one of them. The emotional damage done to children, stealing their innocence on an emotional level, the things that adults will say to children, the way they manipulate children, the way they control children unnecessarily, stealing their innocence on an emotional level. Wicked, evil. And this woman was greatly disturbed, as we should all be. And I told her of this passage. I say, it bothers you, it bothers me. And I want to tell you, it also bothers God. God's not okay with that. We didn't go much. This woman's godly enough where she wasn't going to go down the road of, well, then why doesn't God stop it? I mean, she, she knows her scripture well enough to know that sin is in the world and that, you know, to stop sin would be to wipe out mankind because if there's one person, there's sin in the world, right? So the only way to stop sin is for Christ to come back right now, throw all the unsaved in hell, and recreate in the saved a new body and be with him forever. That's the only way to stop children from being hurt. There's no other way to make that happen. So she knows that. And for her at that time, that was enough. We haven't talked about that topic since. I don't know if it still bothers her. I I would imagine it does because it still bothers me. But that truth was enough for her. Okay. God's bothered by it too. And here's the passage. If you needed one to know that, here it is. But remember again, who are we talking to? And in what context? The apostles in the context of leadership. Christ is training his leaders. Why aren't Christian leaders bothered by the stolen innocence of children. Well, they are. Are they now? Because if they were, I'm pretty sure I'd see some action. Pretty sure I'd see something done when a child is wronged. Instead of protecting the criminal, I'm sorry, instead of protecting the victim, the child, they're protecting the criminal, the perpetrator. They're protecting the adult who did the wrong. Oh, well, well, you know, they didn't really mean it. Ah, uh, yeah, you know, everyone gets angry once in a while. Yeah, you know, yeah, everyone gets angry and, and punches a kid. I mean, come on now. Why would you justify that? What part of you thinks that's okay? Well, they're just human. So are we all. Is that okay? Well, you know, I don't, there's nothing you can say after well you know that makes okay what they just did. Time after time, story after story, I am sick of it. Churches taking their pastors, their youth pastors, their children's pastors who have stolen the innocence of a child physically, either sexually or in some kind of abuse. They've hurt that child emotionally. I mean, if it's emotional, it's pretty much just ignored. Well, they're they're just children. They'll bounce back. Do you even know what therapy is and why we have it? Because of trauma. Trauma comes from abuse. You are not helping that child as a Christian leader. You are causing them trauma. It's the opposite of what you should be doing. But this this sexual abuse happens, and the churches just move the guy to a different church. Well, you know why, Russ? Because the Bible says we are the judge of angels, so we need to judge ourselves, and we need to take care of the problem and not involve the law. Look, if you really believe that, then the guy would be hanging outside by his toes from a tree somewhere. Right, if he's lucky, if he even got to the tree. If you really believe that, he would not survive the day. If you truly believe that, well, we don't have the authority. Exactly. You don't have the authority to hang him by his toes, so turn him into someone who can. Because if you truly believe you can judge angels, then you better be really, you, you, stop being so easy on these people. And judge them with righteous judgment. But you're right, you can't hang them by their toes. You'll go to jail for that. So send this guy to jail. But no, these churches have convinced themselves, out of context, that they don't involve the law in issues that happen in these four walls. They just move the criminal to another location to do their dirty deeds all over again to someone else. You say, Pastor Russ, I mean, hanging them by their toes, isn't that a little harsh? Not as harsh as what Christ says here. Because what does Christ say? Matthew chapter 18. 
We're back there now. Verse 5. He says, who oh, so shall receive one such little one of my name receive me, but who shall offend one? He doesn't actually say how to offend. He didn't say whether it's physical, sexual, or emotional. He just says offend, in my opinion, anyway. You, you traumatize a child in any way. I am strongly opinionated in a belief. You fall under verse 6. Do not think verse 6 is only for pedophiles. Oh, it most definitely includes pedophiles. It includes abusers in any way of innocent children. And he says... If you're one of those, it's better for you to tie a lot, I'm paraphrasing now, a large stone to your neck and jump into the ocean. Well, obviously, you're not coming back from that. You're obviously dying on that one. So, churches who think you are called to judge the perpetrator, well, now you know the standard by which to judge them right here. Now you know the consequence that should be given to those. You tie a rock around their neck and chuck them in the ocean and hope the law doesn't catch you. That is the consequence for stealing innocence of children. Not replacing them with someone else and repositioning them in another church. That's the wrong idea. You made the wrong move there. But Russ, they're a good person. Well, there's none good, so you're a liar. And I don't care what kind of person they are. I'm not judging them for who they are. I'm judging them for what they did. And what they did, they need to jump in an ocean. I'm not saying that. Christ is saying that. Christ is saying they're better off jumping in an ocean than what I will do to them, what I will have in store for them if they continue unjudged. Adults, we are charged with the protection of all children, not just yours, all If there is ever a child in your midst and their innocence is being stolen, you better do something about it. Don't ever let it be said for Meriden Hills, Mid-State Christian, or the people who come to this ministry, that we turned and looked the other way when a child's innocence was being robbed from them. I read recently... This is not anyone I know personally. This is an article I read about a young man who went to a college. I went to Pensacola Christian. It's not this college. It was a different college, although it was a Christian college, not PCC. This young man went to a college, and he got a job at this college. I believe it might have been a summer job. I don't remember the article stating what time of the year, but it implied something like that. A young lady who also went to this college was working in the same area as this young man. This young lady came from a very conservative background, very conservative church and family. Her knowledge of the world, the, I mean, the article was being said from her point of view, so she's describing it. Her knowledge of the world was like non-existent, like she kind of very naive. She was working alone one day with this young man, and he took advantage of her and raped her. On the campus of a Christian college. Scared her. She she had very little knowledge of sex at all, let alone that something like this could happen to her at a Christian college while working for the college. As most victims, she did not tell anyone. That's kind of a common theme. They're embarrassed. They're scared. uh, they're They're ashamed. Then shamed by the guy, usually. She heard a message. She stayed at the college. She didn't leave. She heard a message, and it encouraged her to stand up and do, do what needed to be done. So she went and told the college administration about what happened. She said this happened. It was like months later. This happened months ago. That young man, he's still here, and he raped me. And by the way, it was once it happened multiple times because once he got away with it, and she didn't tell him, telling him, he kept doing it. I think the article said like three times at least, like three or four times, something like that. She finally told the administration months later. They expelled him glad for that, right? That's not what you are expecting, was it? They expelled him. But here's the crazy part. She stayed there. She thought, okay, he's been chastised. He's been expelled. Really, he should have gone to jail, right? Rape is a jail offense, not an expulsion offense, whatever. They expelled the guy, didn't call the police. She was too young and naive to know to call the police. Since the article, I think she did go the police route, and that was a different story. But that was like she was an older woman now. She's like middle-aged, talking about a story from when she was like 18, So at that time, she didn't know to call the police. She didn't understand that was the process. She accepted his expulsion as the consequence and just lived with that. 
But then the next school year, guess who comes back on campus? The same young man. She went to the administration, and she said, why is he here? You're not going to believe what they said. They told this girl, well, he's a good Christian boy. He's going into the ministry, and we didn't want that incident to hinder God's work in his life. I know. Sickening. She left, obviously. She should have left a long time ago. Police should have been involved a long time ago. She's too young and naive to know that. My point is, that is a common story told in one way or another, but similar themes. Leadership thinking, we all make mistakes, let's let it slide for the good of the ministry. I don't know what Bible you're reading, because I don't read that in my Bible. I read, jump in the ocean and kill yourself. Christ is saying, the offense of a child is so severe, it deserves a severe consequence. And expulsion ain't it. Moving to a different state, not the right answer. So, leaders, you want to be a good leader? Read the Bible. Here is good leadership right here. One of your most important jobs as a leader is to protect the innocent, not abuse them. And if you ever see another leader abusing the innocent, they don't deserve to be a leader. Do everything in your power to remove them from leadership. I appreciate you being here tonight. It is an unfortunate topic to end on. I am sorry for that, but hopefully it will leave you considering the heart of Christ and how important children are to him how important they should be to us. We will continue this topic and this chapter, continuing the mini-sermon that you might call here in the book of Matthew, chapter 18, as it relates specifically to leaders. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your people. I thank you for your word, even the hard passages like this that we read tonight. I pray that these passages would truly shape our philosophy of leadership, and the philosophy of leadership that we expect from those who lead us. That we would seek at all costs the protection of children. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.